So today on the Ronin Rescue Cast, all the way from down the street, we've got Scott. Um, I'll let Scott do the introductions on himself. Go ahead. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Mark. Uh, so my name is Scott Pindre. I am a uh, paramedic with the uh, British Columbia Emergency Health Services. I've uh, been doing that for well over 30 years. I've uh, been with Penticton Search and Rescue for the last 15. I've uh, been a recreational climber for a number of years, uh, former reservist, um, and kind of passionate about the uh, the outdoors and the medicine side of uh, austere medicine. Uh, and, uh, oh yes, and of the last couple of years, I've been a Ronin Rescue geek as well. Um, so, yeah, so here today to talk about uh, some suspension trauma and a couple other things. Um, there's a lot of, uh, and we'll just go straight into that suspension trauma one. There's a fair amount of concern about um, suspension trauma and it, it's historical. Uh, there's a paperback from 1972 by, um, I just want to read his name so I get it somewhat correct, Pat Shader um, from Europe, uh, where he looked at uh, 10 autopsies uh, retrospectively um, on some mountaineers that died with no obvious causes of trauma or signs of trauma. Uh, those autopsies were done between 56 and 68, so it's pretty dated information by today's medical standards. Um, and they postulated uh, the hypothesis out of that was that they died of suspension trauma. Um, and the working theory at the time of suspension trauma was um, that you would have the leg loops of the harness was cutting off return of blood to the heart. So you would have less circulating volume as well as you would have a buildup of toxins inside your uh, lower extremities because you weren't having blood turn around. Um, and that was uh, is what was causing people to die. Um, there's been very few deaths in terms that can be found to be exclusively um, suspension trauma or harness-induced harness pathology. Um, there's not a lot of deaths on it. There's these 10 and there's a couple of others here and there. They're pretty sporadic, as is the research on this. There's not a lot of research papers um, out there medically on this. Uh, luckily, there's a couple of new ones that um, have looked at things uh, in a new lens uh, with modern standards, and uh, we have some recommendations from those that I'll go over in a bit. Um, yeah, so the, uh, so I mentioned the, uh, the venous pooling that occurs when you're wearing a harness, um, but is that the case? I mean, if it's that dangerous, how come we don't have more issues with it? When you look at um, IRATA, um, there was 5.9 million, and it was like over a nine or a 10 year period, hours logged by IRATA technicians with no incidents of suspension trauma or signs and symptoms of suspension trauma. Uh, so if we start thinking about the hours that are logged by SPRAT, by fire departments who don't record them, and search and rescue teams who don't record them, and climbers who don't record them, and um, cavers and there's tons of people who work in harnesses all the time uh, that don't record that um, how much time they spend hanging in a harness um, it doesn't seem to be that big of a concern uh, is it uncomfortable is there something that happens there yes some of the literature that i read suggests that further studies recommended and the idea of a registry is not a bad idea and ideally it would be a worldwide registry where 
hey, we had this person hanging in a harness and they died and we don't know why. Okay, well, let's register them with that registry and then we can actually get a real grip of how many numbers there are. But I don't think, you know, there's very little out there that says it's going to be a lot of people. Did um, you by chance um, take a look? I know, was it Mortimer, Dr. Mortimer, Latimer? Did some mm -hmm. research on it. Um, and I know he had looked at some of these older Mm -hmm. um, studies and some of the newer ones and that's where I think a lot of this thing about rhabdo came in that you had mentioned yeah. but um, so I think the one you're thinking of is by Moore um, no that's not it This one here, I think, is the one you're thinking of. Uh, by Moore. Um, so yeah, so he goes into a bunch of pathology on it about um, how you have. So just a little bit of pathology for those people that don't know it. Um, inside your lower legs, you have a bunch of one-way valves. So as the heart pressurizes blood to the brain and upper extremities and heart and lungs and things like that. Uh, gravity plays a large effect getting it down to the legs. Um, there is some blood, like the heart does pump blood down there as well, but it doesn't have enough pressure to pump it all the way back up on its own. Um, so there's a bunch of one-way valves in there that act like foot valves that you would find on a hose system. Um, and then there's also the uh, skeletal muscle pump. Uh, and there's a number of um, pumps inside, specifically inside your calf muscles, that will cause and act as little pumps as you move your calves around you pump blood back up and you get the return. Uh, so when you're standing, walking, things like that, uh, your calf muscles are active and that causes blood to come back up to the heart and prevents uh, the venous pooling we're talking about. Um, there's a couple of other mechanisms, but they're pretty minor in terms of that. So what was hypothesized back then and with this one paper um, was that we had all this blood pooling and it would create a condition called uh, rhabdomyolysis. Um, which is where, and it happens naturally, but rhabdomyolysis is an excessive buildup. Um, cells die, the body deals with um, everything that comes out, but when too many cells die and the body doesn't have the ability to purge the dead cells and the toxins and the proteins and uh, stuff that come out of those cells, they wind up, uh, you wind up having too much and it overwhelms the kidneys and the heart and things like this. Um, so that is what uh, what the working theory was on suspension trauma is you had this buildup of fluid in the legs and people would uh, die with this overload of toxins that come up when the circulation is restored. Um, there's lots of things that sort of say that's not the case. Um, if you look at um, soldiers on a parade square um, or medical students in an operating theater, um, the soldier on the parade square is not moving because he's scared to death of the regimental sergeant major and the med student is so engrossed in what the surgeon's doing they forget to move their legs ever so subtly and what happens is they wind up with venous pooling and they have and the body goes hey there's not enough blood getting up to the brain and they collapse they have what's called a syncopal event um, and they fall to the floor um, which is their biggest risk of injury um, is getting their head hit as they go down um, these people don't die and this happens a fair amount i remember when i was a cadet decades ago um there was always at least one person at the vernon camp going down at least one if not two or three especially in the summer 
Um, Let me interject with this a question here that's going to kind of come up is people will say because they have that you know fainting episode, mm-hmm. that then allows that blood to go back to the brain. When people pass out in a harness or unconscious in a harness, that doesn't allow for that. Mm-hmm. But what you're saying here is, excuse me, that that pooling of blood and the hitting of things like your flush organs yeah. uh, into the heart isn't enough of a factor that, let's call it just dirty blood for the, the viewership, yeah. the listenership, isn't enough of a factor to actually kill that person. Yeah. So the uh, the big difference there is time. So yes, and, and you bring up a valid point, right? Is they're unconscious hanging in a harness. They're not able to move. So those leg muscle pumps aren't working and things like that. So you will wind up with more toxin there. Um, so things that are kind of, or things that have prevented that one, modern harness design, as well as uh, occupational health and safety regulations have, have changed that, right? So you have to, most people working on rope, have to have a rescue plan and these sorts of things in place. Um, but I'm pretty sure there's lots of guys who climb poles and uh, do things on poles that aren't wearing, that don't have a, a someone that handy to rescue them. Well, it's interesting. And I mean, this conversation kind of comes up. I mentioned it before. You're a member of Penticton Search and Rescue, as am I. And there was uh, hypothetically a call a while back where uh-huh. a climber was suspended. And as far as we can tell, it was four or five hours yeah unconscious yeah so and they did treat her for rhabdo in the hospital they did treat this person for rhabdo in the hospital they did however they didn't die no no they they had a complete recovery um uh, they were hospitalized for a day or two um but uh yeah and that was yeah they were reported overdue and by the time i think by the time we got them picked off they were reported overdue where they were supposed to be out. Okay, let's. They're supposed to be out around one. I think by the time we got them picked off, it was nine o'clock at night. So how and they said that they had been hanging in their harness for a long time. They managed to get themselves. They were solely climbing. Managed to get themselves stuck, and they were hanging in their harness for a long time. Um, long enough that when we got them up to the top, um, my attendant had to carry them um into the safe zone like their legs were just not working um so they'd been hanging for quite a while and yeah and my concern was what's going to happen when i lay her down and nothing other than she was oh this is much more comfortable so yeah and that's where i think a bit of background maybe we should start with this at the beginning (laughs) is um you know it's interesting i've always been told in the last little bit about suspension trauma and you know that BCAS, your organization, when I work fire, does not have protocol for this. And, you know, what do we do with this? And then we go to this call and someone's hanging. I mean, we're conservatively saying somewhere between four to five hours in a harness, in a climbing harness on a single rope. Um, And we don't know to what extreme, if they're upside down, sideways, standing on a rock for five hours. But this person was unconscious for a part of it because they don't remember the actual event. Yeah, there there is definitely some lapses in their memory. Um, so yeah, so there's some some stuff happened there. Um, we yeah, we'll just leave it at that. Um, um, so let's look at some of the like the old school sit method. Does that still have any validity to it? When we used to bring them down, and you'd stop them and lift up their legs and move them around. And so I'm going to go to 
Um, so Simon Roach and uh, his group of researchers uh, did Suspension Syndrome, a, sync, a scoping review and recommendations from the International Commission for Mountain Emergency Medicine. So ICAR MedCom for... What, when? What year was this? This is this spring. Or sorry, this is a year ago. Okay. 2023. Okay. 2023 spring. Um, so it's a good paper in that it... Uh, it look, it, it's a retrospective paper, so it looks at previous studies. They didn't do any new research, but they looked at all the studies they could find um, and, and gathered as much information as they could on it. In doing that, uh, some of the conclusions that they came up with were quite interesting. Well, not interesting. They're sort of very supportive of, of where this direction needs to be going. So medicine has a grading system. Um, so it's one ABC, two ABC, one representing a strong recommendation, two recommending, say, saying a weak recommendation, and then ABC determines the body of evidence. So A is good body of evidence, B is moderate, and C is a weak or poor body of evidence. Um, and so that's how medical papers in North America get graded. Um, or recommendations get made. I mean, grading's different. Um, so out of the recommendations of this study that was just done, um, so work rope, work, rope work should not be done uh, with proper, should only be done with proper equipment and knowledge on how to use correctly. Rope work should never be conducted alone. That gets a 1C recommendation. So that says that it's a strong recommendation with not a lot of evidence that says that it's 100% safe, but it seems like a pretty common sense thing. Um, and most occupational health and safety regulations uh, dictate that. Um, so, but here's some of the other uh, interesting ones. So it says persons suspended in a harness should be rescued as soon as possible, uh, even if they are asymptomatic, um, uh, whether as time is too near or actual syncope and potential cardiac arrest is variable. That gets a 1B recommendation. So yes, we should be rescuing people as quickly as we can, but we can't um it doesn't have a lot of, a lot of evidence to support it it's got more than working alone but it doesn't have that um now while awaiting a rescue a person suspended freely on a rope should move their legs to reduce venous pooling gets a 2b recommendation uh so that says it's not really a strong recommendation it's a weak recommendation technically and there's not a lot of evidence that supports that that's going to change anything in the patient outcome um, and then if, uh, and then the practice of standing in foot loops, um, that you'll find on a lot of commercial harnesses also gets a 2B recommendation. Uh, again, it's not going to hurt, but it's probably not going to change much in the terms of outcome. Um, if the, uh, casualty is no longer able to act, so unconscious, um, and it's safe to do so, the first rescuer reaching the casualty should raise the victim's legs to create a more horizontal position while measures are, are taken to lower the patient to the ground. Gets a 2C recommendation. So that is a weak recommendation, and there's very little body of evidence to support that that's going to change the outcome of anything. So arguably, if you're the first rescuer to a person hanging on a harness and you can get them off their system, take them to the ground. Um, now, Here's a 1A recommendation for you. So good body of evidence, strong recommendation. Once casualties on the ground, they should receive ACLS as soon as possible. So advanced cardiac life support. Um, and they should be mindful of hyperkalemia and pulmonary embolisms should be diagnosis considered if the person's unconscious or symptomatic still. Um, and um, after prolonged hanging, 
Patients are at risk of developing hyperkalemia and acute kidney injury, therefore should be transported to a hospital capable of performing emergent or uh, renal replacement therapy. So a dialysis machine uh, also gets a 2C recommendation. So there's not a lot in the medical from medicine that says all these things that we've been taught and thought about um, coming from doctors are saying really don't need to worry about that stuff. So to sum up ICAR, they're basically saying like the, the big strongest recommendation is get the casualty on the ground as fast as possible and get them to ACLS. Yes. Or ALS, depending on what yeah, work yeah, in the world. Yeah, yeah. What, what letters you what, what acronym you want to use today. So is this a case that, and what's, I mean, BCAS, I'll just call them under their old acronym, um, BC Ambulance Service for people that don't, British Columbia Ambulance Service. We have people overseas that listen to this. Um, I work fire, Scott works paramedic. Paramedicine, pre-hospital care in British Columbia starts at the first response level, generally with fire and then moves with, we do not transport in fire. It moves to a higher level of care when ambulance arrives. So I would be more of the EMR, EMT basic in the States level trained. He deals more with the PCP and then the ACP or primary care, advanced care, paramedic level. They deal with the transports. Yeah. Um, just to put that context in. So I show up as fire. I'm responsible for the rescue. Mm -hmm. Who am I asking for? Am I asking for a primary care car? Am I asking for an advanced care car? Ask for an advanced care car because something's happened um, and that person's hanging. Um so yeah, so answer so in BC, if you get an advanced car, you're going to get a basic car as well. Yes. So you're going to get two resources show up, and if the advanced care gets there and ECG goes on and there's no signs of hyperkalemia or anything like that, they can download them to the to the uh, primary care car, and uh, and off they go to the hospital for further assessment and monitoring is what they would need, right? So that's kind of how that one would that one would play out in British Columbia. Keeping in mind we don't have ACPs everywhere in the province. Yeah, so I mean, I guess worldwide the standard would be try whatever your means is to get advanced care paramedic. And I know in Europe you have the ability to have doctors show up. Yep. This is more of a cardiac style event. That's fine. You can hear beers on this. Um, this is more of a cardiac style event. You want that higher level of care attending. Yeah, yeah, if possible, yeah. Okay. Um, you mentioned the word hypo, hyperkalemia a few times. For all of us bucketheads out there, could you do a definition, please? Oh, really? You're going to make me do that? Um, <laughs> you're going so to have to look it up. I'm going to have to look it up. Um, if I, my memory serves me right, it is a buildup of, or of potassium. Yeah, because P waves are something yeah. they look at on a 12 yeah. lead in this. Yeah. Yeah, so it's too much potassium, um, and that and potassium affects contractility of the heart. Um, so this is so, going to show up on the P waves on yeah. your twelve lead, which is why you, I mean, unless your PCPs are running twelve leads, we are. Yeah, okay. we're not doing interpretation. The machine's doing the interpretation for us, but uh, yeah. So it's uh, but that's coming. That's changing. Big scope of practice change coming up. Okay, like five days of school this year. There you go. So depending on where you are, you need somebody that can interpret a 12 lead or an yeah. um, echocardiogram yeah. in order to check for P waves um, yeah. or on the, the potassium in the heart, which will come yeah. out as that. Yeah. What is ALS going to be doing for this person? 
Or what should maybe they be doing for this person? <laughs> um, so a couple of the things that come with this person, and again, with general treating of rab- rhabdomyolysis, um, fluid challenges are a good thing. Uh, so the kidneys have something to work with, and it kind of dilutes everything. Uh, so fluid challenge as tolerated. Um, no, it's just a straight... Normal saline. Normal saline, or do you want a sodium bicarb for diluting uh, so of stuff? So if it's bad enough... I would have to look up. Uh, hyperkalemia is not. This is not my. <laughs> not your I'm forte. Not, not my forte, right? Because it's not part of my practice, right? Um, so I have no treatments for other than a diesel bolus. I do not have a ton recognition in diesel bolus are the big ones for me on this. Um, so. Um, no worries. So we're yeah. looking at getting fluids on board, yeah, IBIO, whatever yeah, the case may be. Yeah, it's it's the big the big ones, fluid bolus. Um, and, and then ACLS would, uh, well, ACLS would look at diuretics, um, to help with, uh, getting the, uh, so diuretic makes you pee. So that would increase your kidney function and, uh, cause that to go. Um, and there are some other things and, um, yeah, we'll leave it at that. We'll leave it at that. Yeah. Okay. So basically what we're saying is. It is still a thing. It's we still want to rescue this person as quickly as we can, but the outcomes are going to have a tendency of maybe being a little more rosy than we were led to believe. One hundred percent. And we saw that last year with this climber that was hanging there. Yeah. When I mean, we heard about that, everybody, I think, mind well, went to they're so, dead on a wall. Like. <laughs> so I, I got to throw another one out there for you. So, um, where do your trench victims? People at trench collapse, people in earthquakes who've been had buildings Usar. pinning their legs, Usar stuff. Where do they die? Well, it's usually, or, when, or when? Well, it's it's crushed, so it's usually when the release of either the entrapment, so allowing Yeah, so either either immediately upon release, which I think is is kind of the little bit of research that I did on it, if they die immediately upon release, there's some underlying trauma. There's some other medical there's some injury. Other, there's some other physical trauma yeah. that's caused that. But in the ones that are just trapped and crushed, like they're engulfed in grain or they're engulfed in dirt or something like that, um, and they have no other traumas and the respiratory system's not compromised, um, they either don't die or they die days and weeks later in the ICU because of end organ failure, because of the toxin builds up. So that they don't, it, it that that toxin buildup doesn't happen or that toxin death the death due to those toxins doesn't always happen immediately sometimes it happens delayed um and that's something that is needs to be considered and researched as well so one of those things still the same thing rescue them as fast as possible to limit the toxin buildups yeah but we don't know based on sex age physiology underlying medical conditions pre-existing multi-trauma from the event yeah what the case may be yeah you know if the, the climber that fell smacked their head off the wall seven times it may be a different outcome mm-hmm. than just the climber that is hanging in the harness yep okay yeah um and it's interesting because we're talking a lot now about you know like we see it in the i car the the comfort of the harness and the comfort of different parts of this so let's, I guess, do that step now into the comfort of the patient where there's a lot of talk about things like, you know, in Europe, when we do these grim competitions, head slightly elevated, horizontal patient, 
anything outside of that for more than a few moments, like they're getting quite adamant that that's a, a no-go situation. And we get into things like a pike and pivot. Is it better to take three minutes and do a pike and pivot or is it better to take five minutes and do a horizontal edge transition i'll throw one out to arnold here the old pike is um the and pike, so let's pike, go pike with this <laughs> okay that, that's a new one for me i haven't heard pike is before uh all right so i i'm just going to throw uh yeah just back to comfort real quick and i'm just going to go back to suspension trauma real okay, quick yeah, or, or right. comfort there's a ton of research out there on work, especially work positioning harnesses. And when I first saw that, first saw one of those like 30 odd years ago with the dorsal hook on it, with the dorsal attachment point, I thought that was really kind of silly. Because if you fall and hit your head on that, you're now unconscious with your head forward in a blocked airway. So you, yeah, and the blocked like, airway is gonna kill you a lot faster yeah, than right? the toxins. So there's, so there's a balance, and I get there's a balance between compliance in having somebody use it and be able to do work in a timely fashion and be safe at it but um so that kind of comes into this whole yeah a comfort of a comfort of the position or comfort of the patient um and yeah so the europeans are right so when you sit and you look at a trauma patient um anyone who's laying down that's where the body wants to be if it's injured it wants to be laying down because that's when it the heart and all the organs work the best um, and they don't and it's the least amount of out of output and effort on the part of the body to maintain homeostasis which is where everything's nice and happy um, and with that head slightly elevated like the, just a slight tip not so much the head but a slight tilt to the whole body um, that does a wonders for respiration so the next time you tie somebody down to a spine board or a clamshell or whatever your practice happens to be. Don't use spine boards anymore. Carry on. <laughs> no, that's fine. But, but there's, again, it's, yeah. there's a lot of people that do. There's a lot of do. people that do, right? Um, if you can get away from them, please. They're bad. They're hurt. They're terrible. They're an extrication device. That's what they were designed for. Um, get strapped into one. Play the patient. Be strapped in. And then have the guys kick your head up above about four inches and pay attention to how much easier it is to breathe when you're perfectly horizontal on that thing flat on the ground and when your head when you're tilted up about four or five inches and you'll find it's easier to breathe because all of a sudden the contents contents of your abdomen are being pulled down so your stomach and your intestines are pulled down just a little bit and that makes it easier for your diaphragm to expand and contract, which makes it easier for you to breathe, which is also why when we're crossing straps across someone's chest, um, they should be crossed high across the chest, sort of where uh, ladies wear their bras, and not over the stomach. I've seen people go from shoulder to hip, and that tends to impede respirations, and we should be avoiding that in terms of managing a trauma patient. Um, I think the Europeans are spot on in keeping a patient slightly head slightly elevated and horizontal um, the reason being is when we do a pike and pivot and let's do worst case scenario or sick patient right so you've got somebody who's got low blood pressure potential traumatic brain injury um, any of those things where they're not compensating well if you sit there and you do a pike and pivot with them you're going to drop their blood pressure by 10 to 20 points uh, systolic without trying hard 
Um, now, there's some interesting numbers I'm going to throw at you. Um, so the International Trauma Life Support Society um, at one of the courses I attended said every time that, oh, and my number's wrong, what I quoted earlier. Um, <laughs> every time you take somebody's blood pressure below 90, um, it's a 50% increased chance of mortality. Oh, so if you get down, to I the, thought it was bad when we were talking before. We thought it was ten, but yeah, 50. Off, the top of my, off the top of my head was ten. But yeah, no, it's fifty percent. So you get down. So somebody drives their car off the cliff. You go down, and they've got a blood pressure of a hundred on sixty, and you take them up the cliff, and then you do a pike and pivot. And during that pike and pivot, you take their blood pressure below 90, 50 percent chance increased mortality. Each time their blood pressure gets dropped below ninety. And let's talk really quickly about why, if I just stand up right now during this podcast, it's different than if we take a person in a basket and stand them up. Right. So again, I, I alluded to in the previous topic of suspension trauma, we talked about um, uh, venous return from your calf muscle pumps and mechanisms that do that. So your muscles tighten in order for you to stand up, you tighten all your muscles and you stand up. This increases thoracic pressure, pressure inside your um, your muscles and veins uh, to return blood to the heart in preparations. Your body knows this is about to happen because you've told your body, I'm going to stand up. Your body compensates and raises your blood pressure to allow you to do that. When somebody does that for you, for example, on a tilt table or in a basket stretcher, they take you and they stand you up. If you're unconscious, your body doesn't know that's going to happen and you're going to get a whole bunch of blood's going to go down and your body, because it's traumatized, may not be, well, probably will not be able to compensate for it. Um, if you know it's going to happen, your body's probably going to compensate for it because you're conscious. So if we do it as on a tilt table or you strap somebody in and you stand them up in the, in the, in the hall, um, they're not going to pass out. Some people might um so yeah so it's uh that's how that gets managed the body manages that on a regular basis so when you're injured the body loses that and when somebody's doing it for you you also lose that ability to do that because you're not activating any muscles to get tilted head up to standing height and feet below you um yeah there's a couple of um so yeah so that's and what else was there some other stuff uh there's one recent study that i found that um Blood pressures of less than 110% also show an increased chance of mortality. Um, uh, and you said 100 and... 110 systolic. Oh, sorry. So, systolic. Top, yeah. so top number. Um, and there's a lot of research out there on this. And if you go digging, you're probably going to go down the rabbit hole of permissive hypotension. And it is a rabbit hole. Um it's also known as um, hypotensive resuscitation and low volume resuscitation. So, and there's a lot of studies out there that show this is a good thing. So people are kind of tempted to run towards it. But everything that I was able to find on it, um, it's predominantly for penetrating trauma. So knife wounds, gunshots. Um, and it's also contradicted for a traumatic brain injury. And I'll get into that in a sec. Um, but the other thing it uses, it uses mean arterial pressure um, which is a, a calculation between your diastolic and systolic pressure, um, giving an over a global, just a slightly different global pressure um, or number to work with. Uh, normal being between 70 and 100. Um, the brain requires a pressure of 65 
to maintain organ brain and organ perfusion. And we're talking systolic. No, not systolic. So this is Just mass. Press. So okay. this, is, this is mean arterial pressure. So to get a mean arterial pressure, you double the diastolic number, which is the bottom yep. number, add it to the top number, <laughs> divide by three. Okay. <laughs> so we're not doing that in our heads. Nope. Okay. Uh, or I'm certainly not. Um, you look at any, NI, most NIBP machines, like all the ones we use in the hospital like that, they'll have a little number down in the small side, like you'll have the big the number, and you'll have a little number, and that's the map. Okay. Um, and so, yeah, so a map between 70 and 100 is normal. Um, but yeah, so there's some of the studies out there showing running people with low maps, like 60. And the theory behind it is, especially for traumatic or for penetrating trauma, is um, that allows the blood to clot. If you raise the pressure too high, you burst the clot and you just wind up pumping out more blood. Whereas if you keep the pressure low, you don't pump blood out as fast. And that allows clots to form. The downside to it is, especially with a traumatic brain injury, is you really wind up damaging the brain with it. So it's, it has a limited use. And the other thing about most of the studies I found on it were all hospital studies. So nothing they, in the field. So they're very well. There's some. There is some stuff in the field, but they're also resuscitating. And when they want to raise someone's blood pressure, they're not doing it with fluid the way most EMS systems work. They're using blood products, and they're using uh, vasopressors, which are drugs that cause vasocontraction or increase contractility of the heart to artificially raise the blood pressure. So they're using different mechanisms that aren't available to all EMS systems in the field to manage that patient. And it's a limited patient. It's, it's penetrating traumas where it's good at, which isn't the bulk of. And in Canada, the bulk of trauma, like 90% of the trauma, is blunt. Hit by moose, just for all you people listening yeah. overseas. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. how did this come up then, this permissive hyper? Hypertension, hypotension. Sorry, low. Permissive hypotension. Um, like with with the whole thing with the patients in the baskets. Like, how did it end up? How did so permissive hypotension didn't actually come up into the baskets. That was just that was just when me doing research and coming into it. You're going to stumble across this, and you're going to go, well, what about this? We're allowed to have low blood pressures, but those low our low blood pressures are purposely kept low, and they're managed differently than. Um, the what, trauma patient the in trauma the field. Patient, the trauma patient in the field. So, um, yeah, it, and the idea behind it is, is when that person comes into the emergency room, they treat them with permissive hypotension while they're waiting for surgical steel to get organized because it takes time for that surgical steel to get organized. Um, so that's the that's where they're looking at it. Um, it's not widely used. Some systems use it in in the field, but not many. So to sum up here is. Low, bread, blood, low blood, blood pressure, pressure for us in the field is problematic. Bad. Is bad. If they do it in the hospital, it's in a controlled setting with people that have a few more machines and a couple more and degrees tools. to do it. Exactly. And again, it's very difficult to manage in terms of you need to have an non-invasive blood pressure machine on the person's arm cycling every three to five minutes um, because you can't do those calculations in your head. Okay. Right? Like, or I mean, some people can. I'm not. Um, and yeah, um, I've got some questions for you and I never prepped you on these, so these should be a lot of fun. Oh, <laughs> buddy. Um, yeah. So I'm just going to throw a couple of okay, throw a couple of those out there. So, um, I think again, just the general management of a trauma patient. And, um, so the basics still got to be done. 
So we still have to do our ABCs. We still have to do our SMR, our spinal motion restriction. Um, we still have to do thermal protection. Binding pelvises has to be done, right? Um, and not because there's a potential fracture there and we're not trying to stabilize a fracture by binding the pelvis. We're trying to control hemorrhage, internal hemorrhage. So, I'm total tangent, not really part of the discussion. We've got pelvic binders. It's now part of the EMR protocol for fire. Uh -huh. uh, first time our guy has used it, the guy had uh, spinal, like true spinal for priapism. Yeah. The guys were like, <laughs> what do we do with this now? <laughs> they didn't, the ambulance service didn't cover this <laughs> eventuality. Anyways, so. Yep. Okay. But fully packaged, fully, basically, fully what packaged. we said. Um, and then chest decompression, if that's within scope. And then I'm going to throw a plug out to tranexamic acid. Okay, you're looking okay. at that. I'm, I'm going to throw that out there. It's one of my and questions, actually, is yeah, TX. So, um, so there's a couple of studies out there. Uh, so TXA, or TXA, tranexamic acid, it doesn't cause clots, but what it does is it stops the body from breaking down clots. So if you have internal hemorrhaging... It will stop the body, the body, because clots occur in the body normally, um, and there's a mechanism to break them down. There's a mechanism to create them within the body. TXA inhibits the body's ability to break them down, so it's really good for your trauma patients. Uh, it's a very safe drug. It's used a lot in the ORs. They give it prophylactically ahead of times of surgery, um, but it has to be given within three hours of incident. So it needs to be given quickly. And um, our friends uh, at uh, Sarmed uh, and Miles. Uh, I think Miles has actually been on this podcast. Yeah, he has. <laughs> yeah. So I uh, posted a study a number of years ago that stuck well with me. And I actually had to go to him and say, hey, um, I, I need this study. Um, so for every 15-minute delay uh, in the administration of TXA to a trauma patient, you have a 10% decrease in survivability. So for those of us in the austere environment, if it's not inside of our scope, we either need to bring people whose it's inside their scope to the patient or make sure we get them to that person quickly because that's a key, key, key thing for that. Um, but anyhow, let's go back to and kind of what the whole purpose of this talk was. Um, how do we do edge transitions? Um, and what's the best way to do that? So the pike and pivot is a rescuer centric method it's easy for the rescuer relatively easy for the rescuer to do it takes some practice but it makes sliding the stretcher up and over a 90 degree edge reasonably easy um and it's good for yeah i twisted my ankle or i broke my ankle or i twisted my knee or something like that and there's nothing else wrong with me type of patient but if it's a multi-trauma patient it's bad um, because we drop their blood pressure when we stand them up, right? And that's basically what we do when we do a pike and pivot. We stand them up. So there's a big risk of hypotension. It's a big problem for patient. Um, artificial high redirects um, or a natural high redirect. Uh, natural high redirects are great because they, they happen to be there. They're good. Um, and there's been not a lot of setup and rigging for them, and they're not that time-consuming. But an artificial high redirect, unless you're a super high-speed team, can be time-consuming to set up. Um, one end tendon over the edge, one edge person, and just muscle it over. Kind of jerky and doesn't always work well. Sometimes you wind up flipping the stretcher up, uh, which does, you know, adds insult to injury. Um, the one that I'm kind of leaning towards is two more, is two edge attendants. As the stretcher comes up, you kick two edge guys over the edge, 
and there's three people and you go pop up over on all the edge. europeans are cheering and jumping right now <laughs> for this uh i like it just makes so much more sense to me uh in terms of one it's easier to do um uh because it's it it's your edge your edge there's your anchors there's your anchors go and two people over they go and patient comes out um it keeps patient horizontal uh, it makes it reasonably smooth um and medically it makes a lot more sense than a pike and pivot um it's uh yeah the pike and pivot i saw that when it came out in uh, the emcr uh book and i'm like i don't like that because i because i met i looked at it with medical eyes and went yeah that that's not good for a trauma patient uh, emcr for everybody out there is emergency management and climate response bc it's the governing body for british columbia search and rescue all right a couple other questions then hypothermia uh-huh like we could talk true hypothermia like we've had here or <laughs> We could talk about just your average trauma patient. How much effort should the standard rescuer be putting into making sure, maybe not a full hypo wrap, but putting someone into maybe a bivy and, you know, putting a heated blanket in there or something along those lines? All right. Well, this is a good one. <laughs> I, I, I'm going to do this. You're going to close that. Uh-oh. Wait. Maybe I just... just like that. <laughs> Get strap in. Uh, okay. So in the last year... I have had five hypothermic patients at work. Um, and one of them had a core below 31, two below 32, one below 33, and one below 34. Uh, the gentleman below 34 was in his mobile home trailer. So he was inside an enclosed, not warm place, but I wasn't reaching for a jacket inside of it. Now, he also had some medical conditions going on that precipitated that. But the one the one guy that I did that was below 31 was a homeless person. It poured rain all night. Um, and, well, actually, three of them were all homeless people. Two of them were overdoses um, that were out all night and became hypothermic post-overdose. Uh, didn't respond to Narcan. Um, and they had... Uh, low core temperatures and then the other gentleman uh, was soaking wet uh, homeless person soaking wet um, and again yeah below 31 and uh, yeah so it is a thing it does happen especially if you look for it um, if your thermometer doesn't read um, because we're here in BC we're restricted to oral um, and it means that they're cold um, and treat them for cold so um, Chris Kopp does a wonderful presentation on the trauma triad of death, and I'm not going to do that any justice. Um, but yeah, so cold and trauma. What are the three things? Acidosis, hypothermia. So, acidosis, hypothermia, acidosis, hypothermia, and crap. I have to bring Chris back on here. Yeah. Um, <laughs> carry on. Yeah, I'll carry, find yeah, it. Yeah, you're going to have to find it. Um, we're too many beers downrange now. Um, but yeah, it, uh, it definitely is a, it's definitely a thing. So. Okay. Um, so what, what's your recommendations? Like a full hypo wrap or. So, yeah. So, uh, yeah, so definitely full hypo wrap. I'm a big fan of foil blankets. Um, so. Hypothermia, acidosis and. Coagulopathy. There you go. 
Yeah. Um, so coagulopathy is impeded blood, impeded blood clotting. So you interrupt the, the cold interrupts the cascade, the platelet cascade, um, and that leads to more acidosis, which leads to and it just circles down. Um, so yeah, the full hypo wrapper, the full hypo just a heated yeah. blanket or heated, a bivy heat, or what? So heated blanket bivy. Um, so like and this week or not? I was up at Apex last block block before four and we got there and they're like yeah so this kid's broken his he hit a tree and his legs broken okay he's in gross gulch okay uh i know where that is i haven't taken you there yet uh apex is a local ski hill for everybody that hasn't and clued in. <laughs> we still had 20 minutes so it's a 35 minute drive for us up there and it was still 20 minutes before we got he got to the patrol hut. So he's kind of cold, even though he's dressed appropriately. Um, and I just took the foil blanket down, put a foil blanket down. So the foil blanket does a couple of nice things. One, it reflects heat back. Two, it keeps whatever insulation you have dry. Um, so whatever insulation you're adding, it stays dry if you put them in a foil blanket first or a foil sleeping bag first. So, Okay. Yeah. Um, we talked a bit about backboards. I think I'll almost call them extrication boards would be a better thing. Yep. Thoughts on a VSB versus a backboard. And I mentioned this because not a lot of, I mean, SAR, we have VSBs. Not a lot of fire uses VSBs and VSB vacuum spine board. Yeah. For uh, people that don't know acronyms. Thoughts on those. So my current guidelines for spinal motion restriction at work are... If they're going to be on a clamshell or a spine board for more than half an hour, that device comes off and they just go on the stretcher mattress. Um, pressure sores develop quite quickly, especially in people with true spinal cord injuries. Um, and that can lead to sepsis quite quickly for them and is very bad for the spinal injured patient. Um, things like clamshells and... Um, spine boards are uncomfortable so they add unneeded and unnecessary trauma like emotional trauma to a person that being strapped down to that for that period of time so vacuum mattresses i'm a huge fan of okay. um they reduce pressure sores that's well documented um and if you've got somebody who's like i need my knees bent i need to get the pressure off my back i need my knees bent you just fold that in you just position it where you want it you suck the air out and they stay there um, it's just so much easier to deal with with odd presentations and odd fractures and things like that. You've got options that you don't have with fully rigid devices. Um, the key is a good pump. Um, there's a number of not so good pumps out there. There's some good pumps out there. Um, if you have a good pump, um, that that's key to them. And they don't need to be the super padded ones. The one, the biggest downside to them is the space they take up right like they're they're bulky they work great they're fabulous and the other downside to them is they're not super good for two people so just as a pair of ambulance but like as, a, as myself and my partner show up to say granny who's fallen and has a fractured hip um, they're not really great for us to lift from the floor and go to because they tend to fold a little bit too much if you've got lots of people to lift they lift they're fine for that but if you don't have a lot of bodies um, that is one downside to them is, is they do allow a little bit more movement than what you would like when lifting somebody. So, okay. So we could say 
multi-trauma patient into a VSB with maybe a bivy and mm-hmm. a heated blanket and those types of things would kind of be, mm-hmm. and kept horizontal, head slightly elevated is kind of the gold standard here. That's that's my goal, yeah, 100%. Um, we get a lot of questions about how do I strap the VSB in? Can I use those handles and run them through like a CMC strapping system or a PMI or whatever manufacturers or you know the actual straps that come on the cascade or the traverse or whatever stretcher system you're using is there thoughts about that yeah um (laughs) yeah yeah that's 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 the ongoing question right because you because i'm sort of tied to the uh to what i'm with search and rescue i'm kind of tied into their hands a little bit or um there's not a lot of guidance from our authority having jurisdiction on that. So I would say if you can grab a couple of handles um, to stop, because you're going to, you're going to lash them across the top. You're going to go from rail to rail a couple of times. Anyhow, either with the existing straps that come on the stretcher or with your CMC or your um, PMI system. Um, or your herringbone for mine rescue or your oh, double really yeah, or your tubular webbing or whatever yeah, you're doing there, or your tubular web but if you grab a couple of handles as you go that i feel is sufficient to stop somebody from sliding out the bottom or out the top um i would be tempted if you know you're going to have to go to vertical because of terrain only because of terrain not because of an edge transition because you got to go through a chimney um, I would make sure that you've got the foot well secured so that they don't go at the bottom um, and they don't slide down because they will slide, um, right? So anybody is, is, they'll slide just as easily in a sked as they will in a vacuum mat. Um, so yeah, so if you're going to go, if you're going to go vertical, um, make sure you got the foot tied well. Um, but yeah, I think if you grab two or three straps that that would tick the box. Okay. Uh, last question is something we don't get a lot on fire, but you probably see more in SAR, prolonged field care. What do you consider a time frame when you're into prolonged field care versus just, you know, pre-hospital? I mean, it's all pre-hospital care, but the standard that we see versus, hey, now this is going to be prolonged field care and I may have to change gears. Um. Or is it injury dependent or is it location dependent? Yeah, all of the above, (laughs) right? You know, like I'll go with, so I did a, I got overnighted and it was late. It was midsummer, which was nice. It was eight o'clock-ish, maybe a little bit before eight. And we got sent to a, a mountainous area around here and for a gentleman that took a long fall now this guy took a long fall he was coming down a ramp um stepped on some moss the moss started moving took him with it and he took probably a 20 30 foot fall down vertical tumbled down a talus field and is now in the middle of a talus field so it's eight o'clock at night dark at nine um we fly in we had some trouble finding them um based on the descriptions that we got because it came went to a different SAR team the neighboring SAR team called us for the helicopter response um as it wasn't within their wheelhouse at the time and i'm like oh this is just going to be a quick load and go thing so i didn't take all of my primary care paramedic toys with me lesson learned um and we wound up getting overnighted we had 442 come in for this guy 
um, and haul him out because he had significant injuries. Um, and uh, yeah, he had a lot of injuries, including internal injuries, because he was tachycardic when I got there. And I, the whole time I was in care for him for the five hours or so that I had him in care, he was tachycardic with a heart rate of around 110. Um, so we just kept him warm, bandaged all the external injuries that we could and just kept him warm and stable um, and got him horizontal because he wasn't on anything very comfortable. So we managed to build some rocks up and got him, got him in a comfy position. And then waited for uh, at 442 being the Canadian Armed Forces Cormorant that came out of uh, Comox, had to fly up, refuel, winch in, winch out, and get, and get the gentleman out. Um, so that was a long... Um, that was a long night and I got thinking about, um, you know, what in my toolkit at the time would I have done? I, at that time, I did not have tranexamic acid, um, but that would have been one thing that I would definitely would have given. But would I have kept, you know, firing fluid into him? I don't think so because he would have been, he was, you know, he had a radio pulse the whole time. Again, I didn't have a blood pressure cuff with me, but he always had a radio pulse. It was a rapid radio pulse. So you knew something, there was blood loss somewhere. Um, but, uh, yeah, is there, you know, you just have to look at how long is this going to be here? Cause if you go and give too much fluids, you run into problems with one EMP clotting factor. And the other thing about giving fluids IV, um, a operating room study. So post-operative, uh, study, um, a liter of normal saline at room temperature will cool the average human body by one degree Celsius. So pouring fluid, even room temperature fluid into a person is a bad thing if they're a trauma patient. Um, so that's something we need to be mindful of as pre-hospital practitioners. And uh, yeah, I don't think there was, you know, other than a little bit more monitoring and tranexamic acid and pain management, uh, is there much I would have done for that gentleman on that particular call at that time? Um, but yeah, I don't know what else to, to, to go into field care. Prolonged field care is a, a tricky thing because if you, uh, you have to start worrying about things like toileting, if they have to go to the bathroom, stuff like that, those aren't things that we normally carry in search and rescue, right? That's stuff. Do you that even carry them on ambulance, things like catheters or anything like that? Uh, so <clears throat> a catheterization is out of scope for me. Um, but we usually do have bedpans and urinals. Um, I think want to say they're under the seat there when i'm yeah. sitting in the bus you don't use um, them much i don't use them no certainly not not in my work yeah right like not where not where i my general circle of work is is the city of penticton i don't leave very often i don't do long transfers very often um because you're have, putting it in you got to worry about taking it, it out right and if you're not taking it out that means they're really sick yeah pretty much <laughs> i put two liters in and nothing's come out that's a bad thing Okay, so your average SAR practitioner, your average you know, SAR person that's going to be out dealing with this, and I mean, obviously there's different levels. We were dealing with a yeah. call a couple a year ago up north of us, helicopter call, where there was an ALS paramedic that managed to do pain management overnight for a compound okay, yeah, femur. Yeah. Yep. But generally for your average person that doesn't have mm -hmm. access to that, what can they be doing? Um. So the, one of the big things that you can do, believe it or not, uh, in, at, at any level of practitioner is, especially for people with extremity fractures, is splinting. 
Um, so I'm going to go back to the guy that I pulled off a or that came out of Apex a while ago. He's got a ski boot on and he has a very obvious tip fib fracture. And he's like, nope, you're not taking my boot off. And I'm like, yes, I am. <laughs> and once his boot was off, because what his ski boot was doing, it was turning his foot outwards just based on the weight of the boot alone was turning his boot outward and it was causing him all sorts of grief. So once his boot was off and his foot was sitting in a normal position and wasn't being pulled laterally, he was a much more comfortable person. Um, so basic splinting, it seems like a basic skill, but it's huge and keep them warm. So right? warm, splinted. Warm, warm, splinted. When they're complaining about being too hot, then you know they're warm enough. If they're not complaining about being too hot, they're not warm enough. Okay. Well, we've covered um, a bunch of stuff. Suspension trauma, position in a stretcher, a little bit of prolonged field. Um, is there anything we've missed that we were thinking about chatting about? Well, you added extra things. I did add extra things. I always do. I run notes as I do these things. I go, hmm, I should ask about that. <laughs> no, nah, I think that's pretty much it. Well, thanks for coming on. I appreciate oh, you're it. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Right on. All right, we'll take chat care. later.